Just a quick note that this originally aired in episode 8 back in 2018. So welcome to our first special topics episode for the Playing With Research and Health and PE podcast. Um, these are a bit more free-flowing and not specific to one paper per se. Um, and this one resulted in the extra conversation we had with um, Dr. Justin O'Connor and Dylan Landy from episode five, which covered informal sport. And we go more into youth sports in general here as well. And there was just too much good stuff being discussed in this paper, uh, and we kept carrying on with our conversation and the other tangents from uh, from his original paper that he co-authored. Um, then I successfully crashed my audio in the middle of it, so Dylan and Justin just keep talking, and um, if there was a video of it, it would be me waving around saying I can't hear anything. Uh, but there's also a few spots in there that kind of switch from one specific topic to another because of that, uh, but I also think there are some gems in there about informal sports culture, capitalism, and uh, Afghani women bicycle groups. So here we go. Uh, first special topics episode with Dylan, Justin, and Risto. hit on like this really resonated with me and you hit on a lot of points that I think are on the cusp coming coming here as well especially urban you know very densely populated neighborhoods and the community groups that I've worked with they don't have the money to pay the it's about similar pay it's like it's about 450 dollars yeah. for soccer yeah. where where yeah. i was at fullerton so and, and there's a reason why it's expensive but but at the same time these clubs say well you know we've asked them how how come you don't you know bring in disabled kids or don't bring it's just because they they're all volunteers they haven't got the time the energy you know to, to make new teams and to foster it they they like the idea but they're just too busy and they don't have the the resources or the willpower, and if they've got enough teams, they've got enough teams, and um, yeah. yeah, it just seems to be like some of those clubs just instead of having to deal with taking on more people, they just put the price up just to make life easier. So they they're almost professionalizing junior sport in a way. Um, everything gets outsourced now, so they're paying full time people to manage the books, whereas previously it was a volunteer that was doing it. So formal sport is becoming increasingly less accessible. Um, whilst informal participation is is becoming um, far more comfortable, I think it's it's easier to engage with a group of like-minded peers um, and just organise an informal whatever and make it regular than I think it is to commit to a full season of of competition with all of its focus on on performance and and um, fitness and skill and outcomes. You're you're spot on with that. I look at. You know, the way most U.S. schools and middle school and high school, and I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of it is sport based. 
it's it's learning the tactical approach to it or playing games and when you look at what even our college students on campus here do for physical activity they do things that they can do by themselves that they can fit into you know very specific you know corners of their schedule on the weekends or they go to the gym and you know intramural leagues aren't as popular as they used to be for students to play because you have to figure out you know 11 other people to go at the same time and double that amount to have a competitive outdoor soccer game and it's just not you know it's not functional when you you end up having a family or a baby or traffic or whatever that is and just look at the sports that are in decline. The ones that take four hours, <laughs> they're gone. Like baseball, I imagine in the U.S. is is really struggling at the moment. I, I would be surprised if if there's a adult participation in in traditional baseball would be would be quite um, would be going down. I would imagine. Um, I would be thinking that things like golf, where it takes four hours to play a round, are now not as popular as they used to be. Also, um, money. Sorry also money access to the golf yes, course true. itself yeah and and you know athletics we you, you wait around for a day to do two events it's they're sort of they're just um they're so structured and rigid that they just don't fit this modern lifestyle you know people want to squeeze it in at 5 30 in the morning and they don't want it to be stupidly complex right and i think dylan can also speak to this both of us wrestled in high school and college and you know those tournaments are you you get there friday at 2 3 p.m if not earlier you leave at 11 p.m and you come back the next morning at 6 or 7 in the morning and you leave at 9 p.m i had really good friends of mine that were collegiate wrestlers and you know they don't want their kids to go into wrestling because that kills the whole entire weekend whereas you could go into a soccer game and it's done yeah. during the weekend so even yeah. sports specific i can't imagine what cricket is like in oh. in australia well, see, cricket, is, cricket has been forced to change so now they've gone from you know four five day test matches to 20 20 games and they're now talking i think they're going to push down to 10 10 you know 10 overs so they've realized that that they're under the pump and their game was going to die so they've ma- managed to adapt and adjust their sport um and so i think that will help them because they're a big sport and so they throw money at um, and, and their resources at it. And because they're a television sport, they'll continue to be able to throw those resources in and they'll offer their programs in schools and they'll grab enough kids to get interested in becoming cricketers. But um, yeah, I think those marginal sports that don't, don't have that capacity will certainly be squeezed and pushed and um, will slowly, you know, if, if we're losing 15% of our adult participation in the next 15 years, it's going to put a lot of pressure on a lot of different um, sports. And, and the ones that most people are heading towards are low organization, low kind of um, skill. So think jogging groups, um, running groups. Like I mentioned, the half marathon participation, staggering increase in the number of people doing that. Um, things like we've got a, we, I live in a bay and bay swimming is hugely popular now. So ice people just all year round winter doesn't matter what they just go out and they, they do their morning swim um there are we were i was in perth the other day and we pulled up at an oval and there was a bunch of taxis all lined up 
and they were in the middle of the oval, which was actually a soccer pitch. They were playing a full game of cricket. Like it was about six aside, and they'd organised themselves to play on a Thursday night. Um, rock up when you finish your shift, turn up and play. They just randomly allocated people to teams, and they didn't care about technique or tactics. They were just slogging it. They wanted to see how many sixes they could hit. Um, and they were having a great time. And I asked the guy there, do you do this often? He says, yeah, every week, um, different people every week, but it's on. And people will just turn up and play, and then we'll all head off when we need to. And that's that's kind of, I think, I think that's the future. I think that's that's where sport is heading. Um, you can see it a lot. It also uh, tells you the importance of the affective domain in all of this. Oh, absolutely. Um, because we, we, traditionally, right, we, we've kind of sort of, as a field, I say we as a field, we've had this idea that our goal is to make skilled performers yes. or like tacticians um, or even like, you know, as I think Kirk called it, mini scientists at one point. Uh, and that's actually not what it's about. It's about, yeah. you know, enjoying what you're doing, uh, having social connections with others and being yep. able to uh, uh, essentially connect with others through movement rather yes. than movement and structuring your connection. Yes, and it, and it gives some the movement, the activity, I, I think it's kind of irrelevant, but the activity innate gives us an excuse to meet up with someone, you know? It gives us an excuse to come together as a group and do something other than work. Um, yeah. So, so it doesn't, like, uh, there was, I was reading a paper recently on walking groups in Scotland, I think it was, and they found that um, the movement itself, so walking forwards in a movement, enabled people to have conversations they couldn't have if they were sitting opposite someone looking them in the eye. So, and they, they found they opened up a lot more and were able to talk a lot more about different stuff they probably wouldn't say if they were in a, a you know, face-to-face situation having a serious sit-down kind of chat. And so these informal spaces that allow people to converse and confess and to talk and to you know, communicate about stuff that they probably wouldn't have a chance to do otherwise. And I think, I, I think we've grossly underestimated the social context of participation. And I think um, knowing what we know now through the, even the brain research, which is telling us about loneliness and mm. loneliness being innate drive that comes from the savannah playing when we were <laughs> when we we're evolving, and uh, the same as hunger, the same as um, fear. When we're lonely, we produce cortisol, we get stressed, we have anxiety, we feel terrible, we get ill, we have can- high rates of cancer, etc. And we're compelled to want to join the social herd. And if through activity we can join the social herd and become on the inside of the social group then that makes us feel so much better about ourselves and our connection to the world and, and our existence. And I think, I don't think we can underestimate some of that. Which comes back to the policy piece, right? So, um, and uh, I think um, Oliver and Kirk always cite Seed and Top's 96 article, you know, how we tend to, in physical education, focus on individual development, individual progress, goal setting, and things like that. But actually, if we want physical education to make an actual difference, it needs to focus on social goals and social yep. progress and setting up an environment um, that is, we don't want to say welcoming for all, but allows people yep. different opportunities rather yep. than the only opportunity yes yeah yeah and the more I look at this the more I don't I don't think um, you know sport has been through policy has been asked to be everything for everyone 
Yeah. So everyone has, to, so you, you can't say no to anyone on anything. And what that ends up is people kind of resent that in the end because they, they like being like, we, I, I know um, a group of Afghani women cyclists who, who go out and ride as a bunch of Afghani women and they don't really want white men to come into their group and, you know, stir things up if that yeah. makes sense. So they're being exclusionary, but I think that is is a that group is far more functional um, if they remain relatively exclusionary and and similar. Yeah. So it may be that um, trying to force everybody into a one size fits all sporting model is actually detrimental to the idea of engaging groups of people in physical activity and to allow groups to mingle, but not necessarily force them into um, or be everything for everyone. I think that might be one way you can get inclusion within sport without having to have everyone be the same. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes complete sense to me. Yeah. So how, yeah. how does this then, because well, right, PE isn't all sport, but there's a lot of sport in physical education. So where do we go in, or where do you suggest that physical education kind of morphs into to have this more, you know, informal or preparing our students to be more informal sport participants when they graduate? Dawn, Penny and I are just writing a paper on that right now. Um, we're going to talk to her this Um So we're writing a paper where we've, we've done an analysis of the curriculum. So we've looked at all the aspects of curriculum. This is Australian curriculum. Um, where we see skills, knowledge, and understanding that links to the kinds of things we're seeing in informal sport. And then we've done a map of informal sport um, based on our own participation, but also what we're reading from other sources. We've looked at the key skills, knowledge, and understanding we think are important in that. And we're now going to put those two together to say you don't have to change, you don't need a new curriculum. The curriculum well and truly accounts for this. Um, and even things that sit in curriculum like um, you know, general capabilities, those soft skills that sit across, across curriculum so that you know, students will learn teamwork and um, leadership and all those other things they throw in curriculum documents that don't sit in any unit but, but operate across curriculum. We think PE's got a really big role to play there. Um, and we put those two together and, and we say, we'll, we'll end up saying we don't need to change curriculum, we don't need to um, drastically rethink the whole phys ed program but what you can do is enable young people to start to practice these key knowledge skills and understandings by setting up and operating their own informal forms of participation within the context of their school grounds we're kind of stuck in our i don't want to say the old ways but like we're not moving on from sport like competition yet and mm. uh we need to see what's relevant within the culture and respond to it and if informal physical activity is what's relevant then we have to develop skills that do that yeah yeah i and and you think of uh all the talk around um you know employability what makes someone employable then you know, maths isn't going to be the place where you learn how to get along with others and form social relationships in a workplace. It's 
Yeah, nor is probably English because they're too busy testing them every five weeks to see what their literacy levels are like. So, you know, that space in the curriculum, I think we can start to really carve out as a, you know, let's produce really strong citizens that, that engage in whatever activity, as I think the activity is the least important of the, of the things, but let's get them working in groups to support, um, you know, to engage and to support and to um, foster and yes, it won't be perfect and not every group should be the same and not everyone should be in, you know, in every group. But I think if we start to think about, um, you know, having being able to accommodate difference in that um, I know how to manipulate, modify, change the task, the environment, the constraints to fit a range of people, um, I might not necessarily have to participate with all of those people, um, but I, I, there will be a space in there. And at the end, we kind of come back together. So I reckon that's a bit of a skill that's that's untapped. And and one thing we notice about these informal groups is they all require a champion. They need someone to to pull it together and to lead it and to make the decisions. And the, the, the better that person is at coordinating and, and helping and supporting and nurturing, the much the more successful they are. And the more of those people there are, the more likely these groups to become sustainable and ongoing. And um, that's a kind of a skill set that I think we could push, but then has implications for other areas of the curriculum. So um, it's yeah. kind of like cultivating physical activity champions or advocates yes. in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back to what you said, though, you, I agree that we could carve out an, a niche. And I, and I actually think this should be the purpose of physical education is to carve out that niche. But, you know, the U.S. is a very different um, soci sociological place, essentially, culturally, um, than places like Australia and New Zealand. So in, in the U.S., there, there, there is this push on holding physical educators accountable. And in some places, that means fitness testing the students before and after or, you know, doing skills tests before and after. So how do you sort of, like, push up against that well saying no that yeah, isn't yeah so this is a that's a tricky one but i i still think we can assess this stuff like we can assess you know like what i would do for assessment in group work is i would have the students show growth so you got to demonstrate how you've grown so so you might list down i reckon there's probably 15 20 different sort of skills knowledge and understandings you could relate to this kind of context some of it will be about skill because some kids want to improve their, their skills. They want to get better at whatever the activity is. Some of it will be about fitness because they want to improve their capacity to undertake this activity. Some of it will be about communication and um, some of it will be about um, sort of goal setting. Some of it will be about, about motivation. But I think you could assess all of that if you think, it, um, if you enable young people to negotiate that assessment task. So what do I want to show you at the end of six weeks? What do, what am I going to convince you that I've learned at the end of six weeks? So you put this kind of negotiated contract in place. I will learn, you know, to do X. This is what I know now about teamwork and, and, and group work. And, yeah. and I'm going to document my progression over this eight-week unit. I'm going to show you what I now know about teamwork and group work at the end. And I'm going to evidence that with some video at the start of where, you know, I've looked at my practice in group work and I found I interject too much and I talk over people. By the end of it, you can see now in this video that I'm no longer 
talking over people and interjecting, but I'm allowing them to have their voice and then um, entering a response. So that might be the growth over the eight weeks. So from an assessment point of view, it's just about thinking differently about what evidence are we going to use to show change in behaviour across a period of time. And some of those successes will be measured by um, how many people will choose to engage in your activity. You know, um, if you if you have a because we think we think one of the ways to do this is to start off with small groups devising a, a, a plan for a physical activity and then letting the groups des decide which ones are going to get up based yeah. on, you know, and then so people will vote with their feet. Like the best form of one of the, one of the great forms of resistance to power is to, to not engage, to, to withdraw your engagement. So, um, you know, what groups are able to build and sustain and maintain and what can we learn from those and how do we evidence that? And that's an ex you know, example of assessment. So I just think we think differently about assessment and allow negotiation in that assessment and allow young people to take some responsibility, then you can probably, you can probably um, build accountability into that. Which also leads back to the whole notion of if they're going to be, I don't want to say accountable, but if they're going to be game changers, if they're going to be advocates, if they're going to be the superheroes for their own communities, then they have to create these things anyway. So this is just a skill that yep. they're developing to do that. Right. So they're practicing that skill, you know, and and I think it's got to be practice. It's not, you know, it's not all planning. So they need, I, I quite like uh, John Key's um, take on games making, mm -hmm. that, that kind of model where they, because he builds personal social responsibility into that. Yeah. I like that as a framework. It's a kind of a framework that I think you could hang this off. So, you know, rather than making a game with these pieces of equipment and this fundamental motor skill, you say, right, here, here is, and I'd probably use a scaffolded example, build that scaffolded example, and then you um, introduce the key kind of skills, knowledge, and understandings they need to be able to do this, get them to select three they want to focus on. They put that into their portfolio. They do a pre-assessment. They engage in the activity. They collect evidence over that time, put that evidence in their portfolio. At the end of it, they showcase how they've grown in that space. It's, it's kind of, I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's tricky to think about, but I don't think it's, it's impossible or that hard that we can't do it. Something that I noticed through this was like the form of capitalism and how that has structured particular like communities and like, you know, this formalized setting through capitalism. In other words, like we have to breed these players, you know, we have to make money off of these fields. We have to do this. I, I, I find that like a lot of times we don't want to call out capitalism. Do you think that has a role to play with this as well? Policy wise, like, and oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you think of the reason why Australia um, set up the Australian sports commission in the first place, it was to win Olympic medals to make us, you know, look good on the world stage. And it wasn't, yeah, there's an argument there that formal sport is so important to physical activity and health and well-being. But I would argue that people coming together in social connection to engage in healthy activity is what's most important. And that doesn't necessarily require a gold medal at the end of it. Um, you know, I, I think their sporting structures are set up for revenue generation. Um, definitely what what well, one of the trends that's going to happen is the big sports, the ones that have access to TV rights and and um, can sell their product um, to huge audiences will continue to be big and they will probably get bigger and the smaller sports will get squeezed out of that space um, as the market constricts 
And so fewer bigger sports will become stronger and bigger while marginal sports will get squished and, and be pushed to the, to the limits and margins. But I think what will happen out of that is people will self-organize themselves into mm. various forms of participation that are not so technically focused or tactically um, you know, require huge amounts of tactical skill or, or exorbitant amounts of fitness and they will just participate. Um, and, you know, I see that in, in cycling cycling bunches. You've got super fast bunch bunches flying along, you've got middle bunches and you've got people who are just out for a little cruise and they want to have friendship and they go to the coffee shop. And, you know, that sort of stuff is replicating itself across running groups, across swimming groups, across, um, you know, all, a whole host of areas. And I think that's a pushback or a resistance, a form of resistance to this kind of highly corporatized structured sporting model that we've ended up with. Justin, thank you so much for taking no the time out to hang out with us. Um, I know Risto's going to follow up with you about um, the the sociological paper. Yeah, um, yeah. And then when the other paper comes out, if you don't mind, you'll probably tweet it, but um, also yeah. sending it through uh, so we can jump up on that as well. No problem. Oh, cool. Uh, anything else that you want me to tell Risto, who is no, I just a, just thank you for the silence the there. And uh, yeah, thanks for for letting me share. Thanks so much, Justin. Um, no worries. Have a good day. You too. Cheers. Cheers. you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.